Hello and welcome to the Fizzle Show! That's my party horn! That's my party horn! Because you're back for another episode of the Fizzle Show. If you're a return listener, hey, welcome. Thanks for listening. If it's your first time here, want to say welcome. We've got a toolkit for you with 10 of our favorite episodes of the show. These are must-listen, essential episodes of the Fizzle Show. When you go to fizzle.co slash toolkit. You also find in that toolkit a handful of our favorite guides as well for indie entrepreneurs. This show is for indie entrepreneurs, people who are earning a living doing something that they care about, bootstrapped, brazen, brissful, brilly, brill, brill, brill eating like whales. Indie entrepreneurs, you know, we got to fund ourselves, we got to find our own way through life, and we want to do it on our own terms, earning a living doing something that we actually care about, all right? And today's show is a good one. You know, every week we talk about something that's interesting to indie entrepreneurs, and this one I had to bring a guest on for. Uh, Let me do it this way. I'm going to give you my intro to the topic, and in there, we're going to have... We're going to have our intro to, to our guest. All right, I'm, Corbett, I'm in the studio with Corbett Barr, but our guest is, is standing by. I'll, I'm going to phone him in in a second, but let me give it this. All right, We're talking today about the intersection of creativity and commercial success. Okay, How these two things interact, creativity and commercial success. Okay, because we all want, I think I think we all have to admit this, that we all want a practical path to success. All right? Think about that. I want to know exactly what I need to do to succeed, and then I want to go do that thing, and I want it to work. Right? I want a practical path to success. But I find that the messy part in this for a lot of us can be in the definition of that term success. Like what we really mean by success. For instance, you're listening to this show, which means you probably aren't the kind of person who's super satisfied with a a large salary in a very high stress environment, 90 hour work weeks, you know, Christmas bonuses and two weeks of vacation a year. I mean, some of it, we like for me personally, I've always been able to get those jobs. I've just always quit those jobs. I don't want those jobs. I hate those jobs. They, they burn me out. I hate them. I just literally cannot survive those, right? I've always wanted something different. I wanted something that felt more creative. But I don't just want creativity, right? Because I can start up an art journal at any time. I can, I can start scrapbooking or doing like those, those amazing wine and paint book class, wine and painting classes. Have you seen these, Corbett? Mm-hmm. You just go, you drink wine with a bunch of, bunch of ladies. <laughs> And Roger in his tracksuit, you know, and you're drinking wine and you're painting, you're painting wine. But that's not enough for you. I, I want more than just, than just the creativity. I want a kind of commercial success from my creativity. Mm. I don't know if it's just because dad didn't hug me enough. This, by the way, is probably the case, right? But suffice it to say, I want to deeply enjoy my creative work that also provides for some financial stability and flexibility. Because for me, I found that creativity, when I get to live in that mode, it's just interesting, it's fulfilling, it's all of that stuff that I'm looking for from life. And if I could spend my time doing that, I need to find, if I, if I could find a way to earn a living doing that, then I could spend more time doing it, I guess right. is what I'm getting at, right? Now, I'm not alone in wanting both creative satisfaction and commercial success. I think so many of you guys out there listening to the show want the same exact sort of thing. We've been searching for exactly this kind of balance between creativity and financial stability. So today on the show, we've brought in an expert. 
folks. <laughs> we brought in a guy named Jeff Goins, who's just written a book on the subject. An actual book. This isn't a blog post, you guys. This guy's written a book. And the book is called this, Real Artists Don't Starve. All right, Jeff is a friend of the show. He's a friend of ours. I love hanging out with Jeff when we're at conferences and stuff like that. And I want to hopefully, by the end of the show, he's going to break down three myths. We're going to talk about three myths of the starving artist. Uh, but first, let's just talk to Jeff a little bit. Jeff, are you there? Can you hear me? Can you feel me near you? I can. Hello? Can you hear me? Am I, I can on? hear you. <laughs> I can hear you. Should I turn You're on. My, should I turn my radio off? You no, leave your radio on if that's if that's you actually yeah please turn it off. That's, that's I don't a, need the echoing. That's in the annoying in the background. Um, that's right. Yeah, just, first time yeah. caller, Jeff. Welcome, time listener. Welcome to the Fizzle Show, man. Good to hear your voice. Yeah, good to be with you guys again. Thanks for having me. So I want to I want to start just to, like I'd love to hear if there's a place in your life where that intersection between creativity and commercial success, like where did that start to happen for you? Is there a moment or was there a season where that started for you? Well, there was, um, there's sort of two moments. One was when I sort of had the opposite experience of what we're talking about, where I began to believe in what I call the myth of the starving artist, which is just a story that we creative people tell ourselves, which is basically, I'll never make any money off of this. Like there's no money in art. You can't make any, can't make a living off of that. And this happened when I was touring with a band professionally, uh, year after college. And, uh, we, we made like, I think, between all seven band members, like $8,000 net for that year. And we would stay in people's homes to um, like not, not be homeless. And mm. I remember like we would stay in like trailer homes or mansions. We played sometimes a dozen shows a week. And every few nights we'd go to a different cities, stay in somebody else's home. And without fail, almost every city we were in, some well-meaning adult, you know, a grown-up would come tell us, hey, it's great that you're doing this while you're young. Because when you get older, mm. you're not going to be able to do this for a living because you can't make any money off of music. And these were adults. So I was like, yeah, of course. Yeah, that makes sense. You're right. And so uh, a year into doing this, I quit the band and I moved to Nashville, which is kind of the opposite order in which those things tend to happen. Yeah. And I moved here to chase a girl and we got married and I got a job working as a marketing director for a nonprofit. And that was most of my 20s is I had this pretty secure, pretty good job where uh, every year I'd get a raise and a little bit more responsibility. And there was no like I did not fear losing my job and I got very comfortable doing this. But every like six months, every two weeks, so you know, something like that, I would get this whim to go do something, to go start a blog, create a business, go do the next creative thing, because I'm somebody who's always just made things. And I would tell myself the story, well, you can't make any money off of that. And so I'd try something for, you know, a week to a few weeks, maybe a month or two, and then I'd get bored and move on and nothing would ever really take off these little projects that I would start. And so I like that just reinforced the story. Well, this is just a hobby. You can't make any money off of this. And then I remember, um, you know, five, six years into this job. So I'm in my like late twenties at this point. Uh, a friend of mine emailed me and asked me if I would uh, do some copywriting for her. And what it was is copywriting. It was like like I was writing the copy for the signage in a uh, like a, a national park in Toronto. And mm. um, and she says, "Hey, you know, will you do this?" I'm like, "Yeah, that'd be great." And uh, she's like, um, "You know, I'll pay you a hundred bucks for this." And I was like, "Really? Like you'll pay me money to write?" 
Like, never mind that, like, it wasn't like, I don't know, writing a short story or an essay, like I was writing signage copy. But <laughs> the fact that somebody would pay me for my writing, uh, it was it was a new thing. And I remember, this is kind of an embarrassing story, because, like, she sent me the check for $100, and I was like, wow, this is amazing. And I, I lost the check, and I was too embarrassed <laughs> I was too embarrassed to ask for it. Like, hey, can I have another one of those checks? And so I never cashed the check. The first hundred dollars I made off of my writing, you know, like people like hang up the first dollar bill and like yeah, totally. On the, mine's in like a trash can somewhere, you know, in a in a sandwich shop in South Nashville. Yeah, that's amazing. So that was the first time you got paid for writing, and mm-hmm. from that point, that was like that started this kind of um, this question in your head about can I can I find more sustainable ways to do this kind of work? Yeah. I mean, I don't think I, like it was a light bulb where I was like, now I can do this, but it was going from zero to one, um, technically zero to zero. Cause I never cashed the check, but like the fact that somebody valued my work so much that I could make money off of my writing, it made me really curious. And so I started writing articles for magazines, getting a few hundred dollars per piece. And then eventually I started getting back into blogging and got on kind of the internet marketing thing. And it made me curious enough to see if this was something I could actually get away with. Mm, Got it. And so looking back on that time, I'm very curious about this question. You've, you've since then you've gone through and you've written so many things you've written. What is this? Your fifth book that you've written? Fifth book. Yeah. This is your fifth book that you've written. You've been a very successful blogger. You've got all like courses. You were in a conference, like all of this kind of stuff, right? So you're earning a living doing this thing that, that before was just a dream and you've even got a team working for you. Going back to that original Jeff, uh, that early, like that, that like the Jeff who's just realized he lost the check, I guess, basically. (laughs) Um, (laughs) going back to, to that Jeff, if you got to tell that Jeff like one piece of advice, what would you tell him? I would say um, uh, you actually can make money off of your writing and you don't have to you don't have to starve to create interesting work and you don't have to sell out to make a buck. Mm. Like that there was a real fear for me that if and, and I think this is a common thing, that if I take something that I love, like writing, something that feels pure and creative and I commercialize it, I start making money off of it, that somehow it's going to lose the purity and and the passion uh, that I bring to it. And I think, to be fair, like there are some things that are hobbies and ought to remain hobbies. But the idea that if you start paying me for something that I love, that somehow I'm going to lose the love of that thing, I don't think that's necessarily true. And it's not been true for me when it comes to writing. Mm, I love that. I want to maybe let's just jump into these myths right now, because I think this is feels like really natural to head towards this first myth that you talked about. You said myth number one is you can't make any money off of art. I think this dovetails nicely into that. What does this mean? People have this myth in their mind that they can't make money off of real art. Yeah. And I think like there's there's sort of this idea that if I do that, I'll have to sell out or I have to get really lucky and I've got to become, you know, a Picasso or some sort of elite 
person, or I think there's also this idea that like the greatest geniuses of our time and of previous generations in terms of artistic genius, like they starved to do it. It was like painful and full of suffering. And, you know, the argument of the book is is evident, you know, it's in the title, real artists don't starve, at least they don't have to. And so, um, you know, I, I believe that uh, to be a starving artist today is a choice, not a necessary condition of doing creative work. And for me, how that began was starting to get paid for my writing. And one of the other things that I realized is I started, you know, living here in Nashville, there's a good creative community here, musicians, creative entrepreneurs, lots of fizzle kinds of of folks, you know, the indie entrepreneur, Mm. the person who wants to work for themselves, wants to work on their own terms, but, you know, like doesn't want to be like a broke freelancer doing it either. Like they want to make a good living, uh, writers and, and so on. And one of the things that happened for me was I started seeing other people succeed. And like, I'm not talking about like Taylor Swift, although I was in a pub one time in Nashville and she walked in and that was cool. Um, <laughs> like it was just seeing other people do the things that I wanted to do where I started to believe that it was possible for me. And this mm. was, you know, around this time that I got this writing gig, a few months later, I just started to feel this itch that I couldn't quite scratch. And so I started going to conferences and, uh, you know, I started following blogs. I started following Corbett early on in his blogging journey. And I started um, just paying attention to what other people were doing and, and how they were doing it. And I started applying those things. And around this time, I stumbled upon this story about the artist Michelangelo. And uh, basically the story is this, that in 2003, there was this art historian who found these previously unknown bank accounts belonging to Michelangelo and found out he had $50 million to his name when he died and had been rich for most of his career. And this made Michelangelo uh, not only the richest artist in the Renaissance, it made him at that point the richest artist who had ever lived. I thought, wow, this is interesting. Here's a guy who's top of his game wasn't a sellout, wasn't starving, you know, arguably one of the greatest artists of all time. And he was also the wealthiest of his time. And I talked to a guy named Bill Wallace, who's um, uh, another historian, has studied the life of Michelangelo. And he said that what Michelangelo did in the Renaissance was he made it possible for other artists who were essentially blue collar workers at the time, he made it possible for them to follow in his footsteps. And what happened was there were generations of wealthy artists who came after him. And I, all these things kind of happened at the same time. And I realized, wow, like this, maybe this has always been true that if you really wanted it bad enough and you understood how the rules of the game worked, you can make money off of art. And if Michelangelo could do it and all of my friends around me are doing it, maybe we live in this new kind of renaissance where um, if you understand how this works and how to get your creative work to a point where it can thrive, anybody can do this. And that's what kind of set me on my journey to start finding ways to charge for my art, my writing, and, and make a living off of it. Wow. So this story, tell me more. Uh, uh, so this, we didn't know about Michelangelo had like money in the bank? Yeah, not really. Um, basically, and, and he kind of propagated this myth. So you know, if you went to art school, you know, you understood that maybe Michelangelo was better off than, than most. Um, but uh, Michelangelo, when he was painting the Sistine Chapel, wrote to his father, he said, I, I'm, I'm tired and penniless, and, and I'm a servant of other people's work. And, and he would write about this in poems as well, and you know, obviously he was being hyperbolic. Uh, Michelangelo got paid over a million dollars to paint the Sistine Chapel. <laughs> like he wasn't, wow. he, he wasn't penniless at all. 
And, um, and yeah, I mean, it, it would be one thing if he were an outlier. Uh, it's another thing that before Michelangelo, I mean, this is fact, before him, artists were not quite broke, but they were like blue collar working Joes, you know, lower middle class people. It, they were more like uh, artisans. They kept shops and they would bring their work to the market and they would sell it and occasionally get, you know, maybe a well-off patron. And there were a handful of people that did better than average, but that was the job. It wasn't, you weren't a high member of society. And after Michelangelo, he set a new precedent and there were generations of wealthy artists who followed him. He made it possible for artists to become aristocrats. And somewhere along the line, kind of in this romantic period of, of art history and kind of the mid 1800s, we forgot that. And there was this whole myth of the starving artist that was born, which is really romantic idea um, that was propagated by this bohemian culture in the late 1800s and early 1900s and has carried on till today. And I think that is not serving us well and it's not helping our creative work because the evidence speaks to the contrary. There are plenty of artists and creatives who are making a full-time living off of their art. The challenge is like you have to be willing to treat it like a business. And Michelangelo did that better than anybody. Yeah, so I love this idea. You know, the myth here is is you know, you, you can't get paid for your art. You can't make right. money off of mm-hmm. art. And what I do love, I love anytime we can look through history and go look at it. Well, here's that's wrong. People have been getting paid for their art for forever. For instance, Michelangelo was one of the wealthiest artists of the entire Renaissance time, even though, according to popular belief, he didn't have much money at all. Um, and I like to make the jump to right now, today, and go, because I also suffer with this uh, create like this this like you will never understand me darling it's art you my peep my fans they won't understand it they won't you know this whatever this this uh if it's pure it's it won't be popular right and right. i do see that you, i mean we have to admit that there is a very clear trend line on the more popular something is the <laughs> the less quality there tends to be in it i i don't know you just could look at like you know <laughs> network television or something to look at these things though i bet netflix numbers are probably pro- i don't know i don't know what netflix numbers are like i hope they're getting to be much larger than than you know name insert name of some network show here corbin you watch a lot of network tv <laughs> All the time. <laughs> ABC, CBS. ABC, CBS. Yeah. WB. Yeah. The CW. The CW. I think that's CW. what WB turned into. But there is this trend line for the, the more popular, some, like for instance, we are, we're all publishers. We know that if we write something that's lighter, fluffier, and clickbaitier, it tends to get more shares than something that's dense and, and, and like an important issue of our day. Not all the time. Not all the time. I'm just saying yeah. we see this trend as well. So in a lot of times, and I think maybe this is this is a good an interesting question here, Jeff. You said they're like the challenge to this. So the myth of the starving artist isn't serving anybody. No artist really needs to starve anymore. But the challenge is you do have to think about the work that you create like a business person would. And I don't know what's one of like like what what do you see the challenge like there's a lot of things in that. That's what we teach in Fizzle. It's what you teach about um, the writing stuff particularly, right? So what are the, if you had to say like one of the most popular common challenges of thinking about your art like a business, what would you say it is? 
I mean, I agree. I agree. Uh, there's a bit of that artistic sensibility in me that says, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, we can't go full-on commercial artist here. And and I think, like, that's that's a personal decision. But I do look at somebody like Michelangelo, and I go, like, what you're talking about, Chase, where, like, the, the more popular you are, um, the, the more you get paid, like, the worse your art is or the more watered down it is is not necessarily true. Like there may be a correlation, you know, where like the broader audience you're trying to reach, the less interesting the work is. Uh, But it's not necessarily true. Like you talk about um, like network TV is like, doesn't get as good of ratings and doesn't even get as wide of an audience as, you know, uh, uh, say AMC, you know, or uh, Game of Thrones or something. And you've got these independent shows who are very clearly focused on the art and they're gaining this huge attention, you know, like Game, mm. Game of Thrones recently, they were like doubling every episode. They were doubling the amount of live viewers who are watching. This is an HBO show. Like I had to pay, you know, like I don't subscribe to HBO yeah. and I had to pay to watch that season for uh, yeah. seven weeks. So I don't think it's necessarily true. And you look at somebody like Michelangelo, top of his artistic game uh, and also made the most amount of money. And nobody could argue like you, he did not sell out and he in many ways undermines what we understand an artistic genius to look like. Didn't starve, didn't work alone in spite of the myth when he, uh, like the last uh, 34 years of his life, he had hundreds of employees working for him. He was an entrepreneur. He was a CEO basically. And all these things that we think make a creative genius today he was not. And I get that. You may go, well, he was an outlier. But then you even look at the data today and anybody who's like really interested in this side of things, I don't want to bore anybody. But if you just Google um, the letters, S-N-A-A-P, SNAP, S-N-A-A-P, SNAP with two A's, um, there's there's a study that um, University of Indiana does every single year where they survey uh, nearly 100,000 uh, arts graduate students, and they basically ask them, you know, what are you doing since you got your degree? How happy are you? How much money are you making? Um, did your arts, uh, you know, your art degree contribute to, um, you know, what you're doing today? And and it's it's staggering. Basically, uh, eighty plus percent are very satisfied. They're making at least a, 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 a middle class income, fifty five thousand and up, right out of college. Uh, some of, many of them have been self employed. They're working for themselves. And like three quarters of them uh, are using their art and creativity in their job in some way. And so like that's not a perfect indication of whether or not, you know, you consider yourself an artist and, you know, make a living doing it. But it's a pretty good sign that if you're a creative person, you can find a way to make a good living and use your creativity at your job every single day. And I, I mean, I think that's interesting. The point here is if you're a creator and you're going, well, I can't make any money off this. I'm going to have to go get a job working for somebody else, or I'm going to have to be like one of those internet marketers that I hate. It's just not true. And and there's lots of data to support that. I don't think I answered your question. Though. What was your question? No, I love this. This is good. Okay. I, I was actually, uh, I was, I'm looking at this snap. Uh, this that's snapshot. super interesting. Yeah, Yeah. no, it's really interesting. It's uh, you got to click around in there. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. This will be episode two thirty eight. So that'll be fizzleshow dot co slash two thirty eight. But I'm hearing what you're saying. Um, I'm I'm curious though when we when we need to think about like shifting the way we look at. So Michelangelo, you're saying was an actual actually an entrepreneur. 
Yeah. I'm curious, what do you see? What's the like, what's one of the the big red flags or the, one of the big challenges or mountain peaks that every artist has to climb to learn how to think about their art or their creativity like a business? Like, what do you yeah. see? What What do you find out there? I, I think the number one thing um, that I see that keeps a creative person from succeeding is the wrong kind of stubbornness. So in the book, I have these 12 different rules. We're talking about some of them. And and one of the rules is to harness your stubbornness. But there's a right kind of stubbornness and a wrong kind of stubbornness. And Jeff Bezos of Amazon said that we are stubborn on vision, but flexible on details. Every great entrepreneur I know uh, is very good at recognizing opportunities. They have some broad vision of what they want their company, their life, their their you know creation to look like. But the way that they get there, whether they go into this, you know, kind of work or that work, whether this product sells or that service sells, they're typically pretty flexible on that. And if they're not, um, they're really going to hurt themselves. And and on one hand, you don't want to be chasing every single opportunity because then people are like, what are you about? And so I think the trick here as artists and I think we're all artists in the sense that if we have a creative gift to share with the world, um, you know, that's our art. And if we're being stubborn about the details, this is where I see people really sabotage themselves. They go, hey, Chase Corbett, love your show. Appreciate it. I, I'm a, I'm a, I draw illustrations. And if I can't make money off of my uh, illustrated, you know, prints of um, elephants, you know, uh, flying in clouds – then like, I don't, I don't know what I'll do. Yeah. Like anytime somebody's so stubborn about the details of how they're going to succeed, um, that typically is a pretty good sign that they're setting themselves up for failure. And so that like, that's a challenge, right? Like, I'm not saying that me, like, I don't want to say if you're creative, you can find a way to make money off of your creativity. I think that's true. But the caveat to that is you've got to be flexible on some of the details that get you there. I do think you can be very stubborn. Like when I got that hundred dollar check, I said, what if I could, what if I can do this for a living? Could I make enough money to support myself and my family? And like a, a year later, my wife and I decided to start a family. She got pregnant. And I said to her, I mean, I made $30,000 at the time. I said, I'm going to find a way for uh, us to live off of just my income. I'm going to replace your income. For a while, she was the breadwinner. And now we were making about the same amount of money. I said, I'm going to use this blog thing that I've been doing. I'm going to find a way to make enough money that I can support us doing this so that you can stay home and be a mom for a little while, which she wanted to do and we couldn't afford for her to do it. We couldn't afford to pay for insurance or any of that stuff. And I was stubborn enough on the vision of making that thing come true, but flexible enough on the details that I found opportunities that I cobbled together to make that happen. And I think that's what it takes. And in the book, I interviewed hundreds of thriving contemporary creatives people are doing this illustrators musicians uh graphic designers people who you know even have uh day jobs where they found ways to um you know bring their creativity to their work and and flourish and you know lots of creative entrepreneurs and writers and so on this was something that every successful person i talked to where they were thriving in their art they had this they were stubborn Mm. on the vision both flexible on the details man i love that that's a really good point i love that tip that's that's something I wasn't expecting to hear that. And I think that's a killer one. The number one sort of issue being, and I like that Jeff Bezos quote, you know, being stubborn on the vision, but flexible on the details on how we get there. I like that. I mean, Corbett, you and I, we can be pretty stubborn about what needs to happen. Mm. Yeah. Sometimes we're stubborn on the details too. 
sometimes we're too stubborn on the detail. And part, I find that there's a discipline, right? It seems to me like there's like a discipline to staying flexible on the details. And what, to me, that question of that is, is like, wait, what matters about this? Mm-hmm. What matters about this? What is it? What matters about this that we have, we write a blog post or is what matters about this that we write a blog post that lasts for a long time? Or is what matters about this that we write a blog post that gets us a lot of subscribers? Uh, what, you know, and so having different goals or, or what matters about it to me determines the details of the thing. And so, and, and what details are important? What aren't, yeah. what's the headline? I don't know. It just needs to do this, you know? Yeah. I'm, now I'm talking like Big Daddy Warbucks over here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't care. I don't care what it is. What, no, I don't know. It's some other. Okay, so we're going to get in. That's our first myth, this idea yeah. of that you cannot get paid from art. We're going to get into the second and the third myths in just a second. But first, a word from our sponsor today. This show is brought to you by ConvertKit. ConvertKit is email marketing made easy. Not just the email, not just the marketing, but there's this automation part to it. That is so killer. We just did a new seven-day email series on how you can create a, basically a completely... Kids, earmuffs. Kid, total badass email mm. lead magnet. That's basically what the seven-day course... It guides you through like every step of the way to do it. And one of the things we encourage people to do... By the way, you can go to fizzle.co slash email <laughs> to check that out. One of the things that we encourage people to do through that is... Uh, is is how is use a kind of email series if you can. Like you can offer a three day email course on making something something on on overcoming this. Uh, you know, get my four week email course on how to have better meditation in your life, on how to uh, you know dog hygiene, whatever. Some things need to happen over a longer period of time, and you get an email every couple days or every three days. ConvertKit makes that so simple. And that feels really valuable to people when you've got this like seven-day course that you're sending them. And it is so easy to update and change over time. That's what's so cool about this. If you make a video series, guess what? You're not going to edit those videos. <laughs> You're not. You're not going to edit those videos. You're not going to do anything uh, to edit those because it takes so much work to make video. Same thing with a PDF a lot of the times. It's like these huge, robust applications. With ConvertKit, you can just make a quick email course and you can edit it anytime. This, speaking as a dang professional here, this is one of the things that I think is so important these days that you can have a killer lead magnet that's easier for you to, easy for you to put together and feels really valuable to your folks. ConvertKit, you can check them out at fizzle.co slash ConvertKit. When you purchase there, it supports the show. Our thanks to ConvertKit for supporting independent business and the Fizzle show. If you're just joining us, I'm with Jeff Goins and Corbett Barr, and we're discussing Jeff's new book, Real Artists Don't Starve. I'm doing that that, NB, that PBS uh, thing, uh, NPR. It's just like, I, I wish we had to do those and. In, in, podcasting a bit more i think it would keep us more honest but the first uh myth that we had to talk about was here was you can't make money off of art jeff just he sized that thing up with you heard the bell ring it started they both came from their opponents the myth on one side jeff from the other jeff just obliterated it with this example of michelangelo killer can all I, right. Can I play contrarian for a little while? <laughs> I was wondering when you were going to do that. <laughs> Here comes Corbin before, Barr. Before we jump into the next What's one. this, folks? Somebody's jumping into the rings! <laughs> <laughs> Stories about 400-year dead dudes are cool. Yeah. But uh, in, in my mind, I, I think we need to 
lay out some definitions here. Okay. Okay. Like to me, like you, you use the word artist uh-huh. very liberally in uh-huh. this sense. I think a lot of people think of an artist as an actor or a musician or oh, a sure. painter. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Or a novelist. Mm-hmm. And I guess what I, what I'm hearing from you, Jeff, what, when you say, um, when you say that real artists don't starve, mm-hmm. I think what you're suggesting is the answer to that is to compromise so that maybe you won't be an actor or maybe you won't be a painter or maybe you won't play music, but that you can earn a living somehow in that field by being flexible on the details mm-hmm. while still having a vision that you're going to be earning a living in that field. Yeah. Is that what I'm getting? No. Okay. No, I appreciate you. I appreciate you asking that. No, no, I think that's not like that. Like if I go, Hey, I want to be a writer. I want to write novels. Right. And, um, and, 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 and somebody comes along, I come along and say, okay, like you can't write novels, but you can write copy for this ad agency and you should be happy doing that. Like that mm. does not work. Like that's not, that's not your dream. Uh, when I talk about flexibility, I'm saying, um, for example, I just, I just interviewed this hit songwriter, um, and, we were talking about how he kind of built his career. He's been playing music for 15 years professionally, lives here in Nashville. And um, he said all of the big breaks, all of the big windfalls that allowed him, many of the opportunities allowed him to continue doing what he's doing today were not things that he expected. It was writing a song, uh, putting it out um, you know, on his own, like independently produced record, getting some airplay on the radio, And then Blake Shelton hearing that song and going, I want to sing that song. And then Blake Shelton putting that on his record and, you know, selling a million copies of it. And what has made my friend successful is, first of all, the stubbornness to say, I'm going to play music for a living. Like, that's a vision. But the way that I do that may be I play some shows, uh, I, I sell albums, I write songs for other people, but at the end of the day... I am making a living off of my art. And in the Mm. book, most of the people I talk to, they're fine artists, they're cartoonists, they're musicians, they're creatives in the pure sense of the word. And there are some people who um, realize, oh, I don't want to do that for a living. I just want to use this in my, you know, job or vocation, you know, elsewhere. But yeah, I think you could have a very specific vision, like I want to paint for a living and achieve that. I do think we get in trouble when we say, this novel, this project, this film that I did, this is the thing that's going to allow me to make it. And if people don't get this, like we're in trouble. That, like, that's just an unhealthy way to interact with your creative work, period, versus saying this is one piece of the body of work that I'm creating that is moving me towards this vision. Mm. Does it satisfy Corba Bar? Yeah, continue. Continue. I like it. <laughs> I appreciate I pre- that. I, I do appreciate that. Yeah, like, no, I am saying, like, if you want to make a living off of your art, you can do that. And you don't have to compromise your job title to do that. You just have to be open, as is the case with anything. Yeah, it seems like there's compromise. There seems like there's compromise in everything when you pursue. I mean, I think, I think when you talk to George Clooney uh, and you ask him about compromise, he'd be like, the whole game is compromise. The whole thing. I, do, I mean, yeah. you know, right? Like, like mm-hmm. I think as a as a music maker, as an as an entrepreneur, it seems like it's constantly, um, simply by nature of the fact that when I make my art, 
very few of us make our art as a as a little. Uh, some of us do, but very few of us make our art as as a capsule of here's what it is. Deal with it and just shove it out. And this is this is a thing where it's like, okay, then you don't need to be success. You can enjoy making your art. Keep scrapbooking. Keep making your art journal. Keep doing the wine and painting, and keep doing like all the things. Like that's and to me that is that is beautiful that's like that's that's amazing that's what life is but if you want to find commercial success from these kinds of activities and this creativity that's where where it's like okay well what does the world want that you can give it Mm -hmm. right it's such a challenging thing yeah and as an entrepreneur i don't look at what i'm doing as compromise but it's my job not to chase my passion hope people will pay me for it it's my job to understand what the needs and demands of the market are right now and then how I can take the things that I enjoy doing that I'm good at doing and bring those to the table with an understanding that that there's going to be some intersection between what the market needs and what I'm able to provide and Corbett to answer your question about the 400 year old dead guy um I I want to argue that this is not a new thing. Like this is not like this is the best that we can do in you know the economy that we're in today. I argue that this is what artists, successful artists who have made a living off of their art, have always done. And and so if you if you want to if you want to write and you don't want to get paid to do it, that's great. That's called journaling. If you want a scrapbook, I mean, I think that's totally fine. I would never say because you're creative and you have a hobby, you need to make money doing that because it's a whole yeah. different ball game. But I know so many creatives who are frustrated because they're good and and their talent is killer and they are not willing to discipline themselves in the business side of things. And um, and they just think they're mad. They're mad at the world mm. that they're not successful. And um, I think that the gr- this is the greatest opportunity to share your creative work with the world and actually get paid to do it. As long as you're willing to understand what the rules are and acquire some of those disciplines. Yeah, I love that. And that's a a really good segue into the myth number two, which is you have to be inspired to create. I love this, this, this kind of clarification, even of if we think about people who we know who are creative and actually really, really talented, but super frustrated because they're not finding a way to get paid to do that thing. You mentioned just then them not being disciplined or having the discipline to 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 make the necessary sort of shifts and design modes necessary or de- like I don't know turns necessary to earn some actual money from this thing. So tell me about this myth number two. You have to be inspired to create. You're saying this is a myth. Yeah. So there's a historian by the name of Will Durant, and he says nothing is new except arrangement. And so this is the idea, you know, to quote Austin Kleon, you have to steal like an artist. There's the uh, uh, quote that's often attributed to Picasso, good artist copy, great artist steal. It's just the idea that so many creatives that I talk to, they think that in order for them to make a living or even to produce interesting work, they've got to have an original idea. And this is not the way creative work happens. I remember years ago, uh, working at the nonprofit, uh, driving around, like like I was driving around downtown Nashville, we were going to a conference that week, and I had a couple of coworkers sitting in the back seat, and they're having a conversation. And and they were talking about some like some Kickstarter or something that had made over a million dollars and like you know it was, it was this big thing and they'd launched this company and it was like a you know young lady in her dorm room or something and the one young one, one young woman said to the other she said um, 
that that's all we need is one great idea and we'll be able to make it big. Hmm. And I, I think this is uh, obviously a, a bad idea. Like I think it's a misunderstanding of the way not only entrepreneurship works, but the way creative work works uh, is that it's not an original idea. First of all, you know, to quote Will Durant, there are no new original ideas. We're all remixing old ideas and rearranging them into something uh, new. I mean, that is the novelty, is the rearrangement, the remix. And there's this is this is kind of the way it's always happened. We're always building on the work that has come before us and then innovating it and turning it into something else. So Jim Henson uh, arguably did more for puppeteering uh, and and brought that into the mainstream more than anybody else. If you think about the Muppets, Sesame Street, and so many Yoda, you know, so the Dark Crystal, my personal favorite. So many things that are being done uh, in the movies and on television today were inspired by the way that he used puppets that were more than just like literally, you know, socks on TV. Mm. And when Jim Henson was receiving like a Lifetime Achievement Award for all he had done for the world of uh, puppeteering, he credited uh, a gentleman named Burr Tilstrom, who was one of the first guys to bring puppets on a TV. And he said, Burr Tilstrom did more for bringing puppets onto television than I ever did. And, and he basically said, everything that I did, I was copying him. And you can Google mm. this guy, Burr Tilstrom, and and find you know some of his early puppets. And, and Jim Henson grew up watching this guy, getting inspired by him. And like literally just kind of stealing his techniques and then building on them and doing, you know, new and interesting things. Uh, but what he was doing was he was cobbling together all of these interests. In fact, Jim Henson has a great um, picture of this sort of dichotomy between uh, art and money. And he really struggled with this. He was an artist and he really struggled with the commercial side of things. That's why Sesame Street did not have sponsors and every episode was brought to you by the letter A or B or C uh, because he didn't want – like it was, an, it was a nonprofit educational kids show and mm. he didn't want to be poisoning kids' minds with go buy this stuff. That's not what it was about. And he was very successful as a college student. Um, he and his partner, Jane, who eventually became his wife, they were doing uh, commercial spots where they were selling uh, coffee. Uh, and oh man, I know, saw those. Oh my god, yeah. I saw those. I've they're seen those they're on YouTube. They're wild. They're, it's called they're amazing. There's so much yeah. violence in them. <laughs> yeah. Well, so what it is is called Wilkins Coffee, and there's a guy named Wilkins, a guy named Wonkins. Wilkins likes coffee. Wonkins doesn't like coffee. They're 10 <laughs> second spots, and they're like little like sock puppets that kind of look like Kermit the Frog. And uh, you know, one puppet says, "Hey, do you want some coffee?" And you know, Wilkins says to Wonkins, "Do you want some coffee?" Wonkins says, "No." And then Wilkins will shoot him in the face with a, mm -hmm. a cannon, you know, and, and then he'll say, "Drink Wilkins coffee," and that's the whole commercial. So <laughs> Jim, Jim Henson was getting paid $750,000 a year to do commercials like this while he was a junior in college. And wow. he really kind of struggled with this. And so he um, left one summer for about six weeks. He went to Europe and just kind of backpacked through Europe and left the business to his, his business partner and a trusted friend and said, I got to go figure this out. Because what he really wanted to do was be a painter. This is what he thought. He wanted to be a real artist. And he goes to Europe and he goes and sees all these puppet shows. And what he sees changes the course of his life. He sees uh, puppet shows where there are kids in the audience and adults and they're both being entertained and he realizes oh i don't like i don't have to just do commercials i don't have to just do this very commercial thing that i don't like i can yeah. entertain people with my art 
and it's not just for kids. It's not just for adults. But the idea of doing like having puppet shows for adults and kids alike where they both get something out of it um, was new in America. But it wasn't new in the world. Uh, Jim just went and found some place where it hadn't been done, not intentionally. He sees this thing and he goes, I'm going to steal that. And so he built this very successful, very creative career around just borrowing from these different influences, cobbling them together and, and sharing them, saying, see, this is, this is what I made. And, it's, and, and we call that originally, wow, that's such a pioneering thing. It's not in the sense that he created something out of nothing. He just borrowed from a bunch of different influences, cobbled it together and said, here's, here's the thing that I made. And we go, wow, that's so original. Man, I love that. I love that story of Jim Henson in the sense that like, it's not about having some original idea that nobody's ever had. It's about cobbling together interests that you currently have that maybe nobody's put together before. I think that's, and I love that, that Jim Henson bit. That's such a cool story. Um, so with our final minutes here, let's go to this final myth. Myth number three for this show. There's more in the book. Again, the book is called Real Artists Don't Starve. And the third myth here is, You've got to get lucky to succeed. What's what's this one about? I mean, I se- definitely sense that like if I'm doing creative work, uh, I'm just kind of doing my own thing. You know what I'm thinking about? Corbett is Jessalyn. Corbett's wife is a fine artist. She makes these amazing, huge, pores, gorgeous stuff. And if that gets into the right galleries, because she's in the fine art world, if it gets into the right galleries, there's this cascading effect that can start to happen that we've seen happen with other artists, you know? If it gets the right cachet, if it gets the right, and in, and in and in successes like that, it's hard not to look back and just go like, "We got lucky, right?" I'm imagining, and so um, be just simply because it's like there's no way you can force a gallerist to take this on, or you can force pieces of work or or genres of work or or somebody's work itself to have the kind of I don't know. I think of my favorite conceptual guy like John Baldessari. I'm like, what? I, I don't know why he, why I ever found him just accidentally through a YouTube search and his work was just like, it just blew my mind. You yeah. know, I, I think you're, what you're referring to is the big break, the big idea, break, right? Yeah. Which, yep. uh, you hear sometimes from yeah. some actors, you yeah. know, that I just happened onto this thing. And next thing I knew I was in this movie Yeah, and my yeah. life was forever changed. But you also hear from other people, and I think maybe this is what Jeff is about to get to. So I apologize if I steal your thunder, but yeah. Other people look back at their careers and they and they say, I never had a big break. It uh-huh. was just the accumulation of a lot of years of hard work and yeah. grinding it out and making opportunities for myself. I, I was just listening to a podcast today with um, Brian Clark from Copyblogger mm. and Seth Godin. Yeah. It's on Brian's show, Unemployable, which is really good. Yeah. And uh, Seth was just talking about how he's been a writer now for... A long time. He's been building an email list since 1992. Like, wow. who has that in their back pocket? Yeah. yeah. But um, Seth was just saying, you know, he has never had a really viral hit. He knows a lot of people who have had individual blog posts or books or yeah. whatever that are far more popular than well, any yeah. single piece that he's produced. Totally. But he's just produced so much and so consistently that it's led to the success that he's had. Oh, that's fascinating. So, Jeff, what's this myth, this this idea that you have to get lucky to succeed? You're saying this is not true. What is true instead? Well, Corbett stole my thunder, so we should probably just end the show. Let's just wrap it up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. I mean, there's, there's an old story. Obviously, luck happens, right? Like, you know, luck happens. Uh, Jim Collins talks about this in Great By Choice, and I think he he does a really good job of 
trying to explain what luck is, which is hard to quantify. And if you're familiar with Colin's work, it's uh, very data driven and, and it's about replicable success. And in Great by Choice, he's talking about enduringly great companies who like for 30 years straight performed at least 20% above the market average. And um, one of the things he talks about is luck. Like, were these guys just lucky? And he says, luck has to be like, he defines it as uh, something good that is happening kind of against the odds, right? And um, it's a fortunate accident, you know, serendipity. And he contrasts these two different, you know, groups of companies, those that underperformed and those that, you know, consistently overperformed and, you know, kind of goes through their, the history of the companies, good things that happened, bad things that happened. Um, you know, if somebody's like shorting one of their stocks or, you know, hostile takeover, all these different things, or the company blew up, you know, things that were unexpectedly bad and, and not, you know, uh, just typical day in day out stuff. And basically the luck factor, the luck quotient, um, whatever he calls it, he says the lucky companies and the unlucky or the successful companies and the unsuccessful companies had about the same amount of luck. They had the, about the same amount of lucky things that happened. To them. They did have fortunate accidents, good things that happened to them that were unexpected. Uh, and in fact, the um, unsuccessful companies had like a little bit more luck. And so he says there's a difference between getting lucky once and then getting your return on your luck, getting a return on your luck. And so that's sort of his explanation for this. There's an old story um, where I heard this from Stephen Pressfield and um, uh, it's set in Hollywood. Walter Matthau, the actor is at this party and this young actor comes in and runs into Walter Matthau and Matthau says, how's it going kid? And the kid says, ah, you know, it's really hard. I'm really struggling. I moved here, you know, a few months ago and I'm just, just waiting for my big break. And Mathau laughs and he goes, kid, it's not the one break, it's the 50. Mm. And, uh, and that sort of talk, you know, that, that goes back to that Seth Godin story that you told Corbett. It is the idea that good luck may come, but it's also going to go. And the people that are successful are the ones that keep showing up again and again and again and are prepared for when the luck comes. And so I think, you know, fortunate things have happened to me. My career was accelerated when I emailed a guy named Michael Hyatt, who was the CEO of a major publisher at the time, eventually became a very successful blogger. And uh, he said, yes, like that was a lucky thing. I asked him to coffee and he said, yeah, I'd love to get together. And we met for about an hour and I could have like, that could have been the end of it. Uh, and instead, when he walked away, I had this habit that had been ingrained into me from a former employer, which was anytime I met with an elder, um, it was my responsibility to write a quick thank you note and a quick like notes on what I'd taken away from the conversation. And so uh, for seven years, I met with my boss every week and he required me to send him an email with the notes and what I'd taken away. So it was just habit when I met Michael Hyatt at this Starbucks on the you know corner of um, you know downtown Franklin. When he walked away, I opened up my laptop and said, "Hey, thanks for meeting with me. Here's what I learned." And this began a relationship where I emailed him basically weekly, letting him know uh, what I had learned from him, how I was applying it, and he continued to stay interested and started promoting my work and doing all these things. I could have just said, "Hey, I met Michael Hyatt once, and that was really cool." And that wouldn't have been using that lucky moment and building upon it. And so I think breaks come and go for many of us. They look different and it's hard to not get jealous of somebody's luck. But um, 
success is, is, is kind of this ongoing residual effort, drip by drip, as, as Seth Godin likes to say. And in the book, I, I call this um, uh, basically the, uh, the rule of apprenticeship, that we are all apprentices, and we need to be bold in how we pursue these breaks, but also how we use them. And uh, one of the people's stories that I tell is a woman named T. Link, who was a lawyer, and uh, and was a pretty good lawyer, but realized this wasn't what she wanted to do. She wanted to be an actress, and um, she didn't. She didn't get some big break. She didn't, you know, bump into Woody Allen someday in New York City. Uh, she she just started moonlighting, taking whatever gigs that she could get, um, uh, shadowing under people who were better than her, showing up every single day. And it took her two years. Uh, and eventually she became a full-time actress and it wasn't some big break. It wasn't, you know, this explosive success, but she's doing what she loves for a living as a full-time actress by thinking like an apprentice. And I think this is a lost, a lost art in today's culture where we're chasing viral, we're chasing the big breaks. And the truth is so often when these things happen, they're here today, gone tomorrow. Like how many winners of American Idol, number one, the number one people can you name that are still performing music today taylor There's not taylor swift wait what's the guy's name what was like gene what, what's the big soul dude i'm soul guy what was his name yeah, i mean the, the truth is people that are like second and third Jeff. place yeah yeah keep going keep going people that are like second and third place are are uh much more successful because they don't get locked into their kind of bad record deal that they have to do or they, have, they have to tour with american idol for a year and all this stuff but the point is just because you get a big break doesn't mean that you're going to use it or it's going to lead to uh, consistent success. And uh, Tia Link is a great example. That Colby Calais, you know, a pop star, she was rejected by American Idol twice. And uh, instead of going, well, I don't have what it takes, that just made her want it more and it made her practice harder. And years later in an interview, somebody said, oh, I can't believe American Idol rejected you twice. She said, no, they were right to reject me. I wasn't that good. And being rejected made me want to get better. Mm-hmm. And this is the attitude of an apprentice. You know, you go back to mm-hmm. the days of Michelangelo, this was the norm. Apprenticeship was a 10-year process. Typically, you spent seven years, seven of those 10 years, 70% of your education was spent in the studio of a master doing whatever he or she wanted you to do. It was grunt work. And you understood that not everybody got to be in that studio, and that was a special place to be, and you were going to do everything you could to keep earning your spot there. But eventually, one day at year three, four, five, six, the master turns around and hands the palette to you. They turn the work over to you. And eventually, if you're good enough, you go on and continue the process as a master yourself. And I think this is a lost art today. But it's still a very important principle. There are mentors and influencers and successful people whose example we can follow if we're just willing to do the work, show up consistently day in and day out, and not assume that, you know, in a, in a day or a month or even a year that we're going to reach mastery, but just keep thinking like an apprentice, keep showing up, keep doing the work. And eventually the breaks come and go. And the question is what you do with them. Oh, I love that. I think that's great. I love that Colby Calais bit. Being rejected made me want to get better. And that's exactly yeah. the, the, the apprentice idea. Being rejected made me want to get better. And that's like the hardest thing. That's the totally. hardest thing. People are starting up their blogs and their podcasts and their, uh, you know, Shopify stores and their whatever, their email opt-in incentives and their courses and their, uh, you know, homemade artisanal jams. 
companies mm, or, cocktail or, or cocktail cherries companies, right? <laughs> love jam. So they, but they're starting these up and then it's like re- being rejected made me want to get better. Being rejected made me want to get better. Being rejected, like at every step of rejection, you send the email, nobody responds. You send the email, nobody buys. Oh, only this many people buy, not that many. You know, whatever. All of these things, like being rejected made me want to get better. Like, you know there's something there. Yeah, but I, and I think that um, a lot of us, in, in business at least, maybe not in art so much, but we, we take rejection as a personal thing. Yeah. Like they're rejecting us. Yeah, yeah. When we totally. really need to distance ourselves and say yeah. they're rejecting our idea or this thing that we put forth. Or we think they're right, right? Because there's, there's something on, yeah. of us in everything that we do, right? Colby Calais was like, no, there's something good in me. She kept going. She wanted to get it better. And she just was like, she was, uh, I mean, I don't, I don't know, grit, I guess is the word. Mm-hmm. She, but yeah. like con- convicted that there's something good. It's not good yet. She could take that. She could take that feedback. There's something that I've always felt like that about my creative work. Like, no, there's something in me that I know I'm, I'm going to be good at something. I haven't figured it out yet, but I'm going to be good at it. Yeah. Right. And it's, and it's that process of how committed are we to this on, to this apprenticeship mindset. I think that's a really big point and a good one to end it on. So Jeff, thanks so much for joining us on the fizzle show, dude. This is awesome to get these pieces, these like, uh, these little wisdom nuggets from, from you into our, uh, into our podcast. Po- folks, if you haven't yet purchased the book, it's called real artists don't starve i've got it over here on my shelf jeff man thanks for being on the show guys thanks for having me thanks for the work that you're doing um thanks for the example that you've set for me it's inspired me and i hope this inspires others wow you got it you got it okay so that is episode 238 of the fizzle show if you guys want some show notes on this some links and stuff like that of the things we talked about including those wilkins coffee ads yes please fizzleshow.co slash 238 and our thanks again to jeff being being on the show check him out jeff goings is a beast on on writing and check out his new book uh real artists don't starve here is an itunes review from vacation holic in usa who says I, I love the balance of helpful, serious, and funny. Corbett, do you feel like that? That you got helpful, a balance of helpful, serious, serious, and funny. I think you're very balanced that way. Oh, thank I you. Think you're very, she says, I'm, I'm writing this review so I can hopefully hear Chase read it out loud on the podcast in an accent of his choosing. <laughs> I didn't read this beforehand, obviously. This podcast hits on so many topics <laughs> that are relevant to someone in the first... All right, that's all you get from that. The relevance <laughs> of someone in the first few years. I was wondering if I should have found a better <laughs> accent to go into. It started German and trended reggae. What is it? that you are having the problems with. I'm writing this review so I can hopefully hear Chase read it in loud in a podcast accent of his choosing. So, yeah. This podcast hits on so many topics that are relevant to someone in the very first years of building. Now it's tr- it's turning. It's turning. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, I appreciate your... I can't even get through the dang <laughs> vacation-aholic. Hopefully that's enough for you. And in, in closing, here's a quote. Here's a quote from Michelangelo who says, the greatest danger for most of us lies not in setting our aim too high and then falling short, but in setting our aim too low and achieving our mark. Find care, take care, serve hard, and dig in, y'all. Talk to you next week on The Fizzle Show. <laughs>